Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for better weather. Thank you for the saints gathered together to look at the life of King David and all he meant to your plans through history. We'd ask that you would give us a better understanding of his spiritual progress. In your son's name, amen. Okay. Last week we covered from David's anointing by Samuel when he was a teen, I guess, uh, to the time he was chased off by Saul, going a little bit wacky on him, and, and uh, Jonathan helps David uh, escape. His wife helps him escape once as well. Um, he's probably in his late teens or early 20s at that point. Um, somewhat successful military career going on. Um, Goliath happens during that phase. Tonight we're looking at the period of time between him, well, his time on the run, between the time Saul chases him off to the time he becomes king uh, at Hebron. Uh, we know that at the very end of this time, it says when he was finally a mercenary for the Philistines, he uh, was that for a year and four months. That's the only, I think, time reference in there that, and he becomes king at age 30. So he's in his late 20s, mid-late 20s. Um, uh, well, we're, it's pretty sloppy there in the early 20s as what all went on um, uh, and how much of the time on the run it took. It's a lot of running around and it takes time when you're on foot. Um, so that, that time frame, again, we might be dealing with as much as eight years. We don't know. But um, in, uh, so textually, we're going from Samuel 21, 1 Samuel 21, through the end of the book, 1 Samuel 31, which is where the death of Saul occurs. Um, and uh, David becomes king the first chapter of 2 Samuel. So that's nice and tidy for us. Um, and again, once again, I've trimmed out I don't want to say extraneous scripture, but in order to make it fit on four pages, I have, and not to keep you longer than an hour, um, I made free, making a few references in the margin about what happens in the in the intermediate with the verse, some of the verse markings. In chapter twenty-one, um, David is this in his first section of time. He's alone. He's running. He first runs to Ahimelech the priest and um, uh, asks for some sustenance. Ahimelech looks at this guy who's a military leader. He's by himself. And he has this problem. Why are you alone with no one with you? It's pretty obvious things are, are not going well for him. And David um, tells him a lie. The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. So he, Ahimelech is, whether he believes it or not, he's led to believe this, that he asks for food. The only food that's available is the bread of the presence. Um, the, uh, Ahimelech gives him the bread on the condition that the men he is taking it for, these imaginary men, were um, were sexually clean, uh, had not been with a woman recently. And uh, um, David takes the bread. Jesus Christ uses this later on in Matthew. He points out 
to the uh, Jews that when they objected to the disciples eating uh, grain they picked on the Sabbath, that they said, didn't David uh, eat the forbidden bread? The bread of the presence is only the Levites were the only ones, and he was not Levite, and, and so forth. Christ uses this as an argument, says, well, one of your heroes uh, did this in a time of necessity. Um, I don't know if I would claim that because Christ uses it, that therefore Christ caused it, you know, that, you know to be the case, you know, that, that this interchange. He also picks up Goliath's sword from Ahimelech, but he doesn't have a weapon. Uh, I mean, he's really just uh, jetted out of uh, uh, Gibeah, where the, where the uh, king lived. Um, he's not quite sure where he's going. He next heads down... Uh, in the meanwhile, he's seen by an Edomite named Doeg, who I think his name was picked because it sounds like a villain. Um, if you met somebody in a movie named Doeg the Edomite, you'd gather he was bad. He is. Um, David then runs off to the Philistines. He goes down to Gath, Ag Achish, the king of the Philistines. Um, and when he gets there, he's, I mean, he's, at, he's at his wit's end. Where am I going to go? And he's, Gath is really not that far away, but he gets down there and the guards or the, the servants already know this David. They think he's king of the land. Verse 11, is this not this David, the king of the land? And they remember the song sung last week by all the girls after the defeat of Goliath. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. It's gotten around. It's a popular tune. And it comes back twice this week to haunt David with the Philistines because it was a song in reference to his killing Goliath the Philistine. And, uh, and so David sees the, the wind turning um, into, to an ill wind at this moment. He is the killer of Goliath. He's alone. He's looking for some kind of place to be and be protected. He realizes that they are suspicious of him, so he immediately starts to drool on himself and scratch at the door, and they think he's crazy. He uh, lets spittle run down in his beard and plays mad, and the king goes, I don't need any more madmen. I have enough madmen, and they chase him off. Now, in this initial time, David is trying to find his footing. Um, as we look at David, we saw last week when it talked about how the Lord was with him and how he um, uh, wished to be with the Lord, the Lord with him and he with the Lord, when he was giving his old speech to Goliath. Um, David, as you know from any kind of cursory reading of the scripture, doesn't always do it right. But you're looking at the progress of his soul. And one of the benefits, I think, this week, we see the decline of Saul's soul, and we see the improvement of David's. Uh, they go back and forth. They're, they're people who do good and bad things. Um, Saul always picking the left turning instead of the right turning. Uh, he, he, he sees the right, he goes the wrong. David sees the wrong, he's tempted by the wrong, and he, uh, but he is tending and trending towards finding the Lord. But at this point, he's trying to find somewhere to be. He ends up in chapter 22 at the cave of Adullam. The cave of Adullam, if, I don't know if you have your map from last week. I didn't put Adullam on here, but Adullam, the caves of Adullam are 
where he killed Goliath here at Sukkah. Adullam is just south out in the wilderness a little bit, maybe by five miles. You know, it's, it's out in the, towards the Negev down south. And Sukkah is right there. Jerusalem is right here. Um, it's all pretty closely in. This, um, a lot of this action happens right through here this week with going down to Ziklag for a time and then up towards Jezreel um, uh, here in the north. Um, if you didn't get a map last week or the family tree of David on the back. There are still more maps on that table? There are, uh, yeah, in the groups with the notes. So, too much time on my hands and too much illustrator. Uh, if anybody would like a map that doesn't have one, I'm happy to. Oh, I'll bet mine's a map. I bet you it's not. That's not a collection of. No, those are notes from the. Oh. And we're recording all of this. I know. I love being on the recording. Anybody else want uh, notes from last week? You can give the notes from last week as well. Now, now the uh, the set of the notes and the and the, the map and the family tree. Um, it's at Adullam that things finally settle in for him into what his protection and position is going to be. Uh, the, it says the discontented of Israel uh, came to him. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. That group stays about that 400 to 600 men in a kind of a, a party, a private army situation. Not entirely a good bunch of people. Um, uh, a lot of the discontented and people running from their responsibilities or something like that, but um, it becomes his his point of strength. He was fleeing to Ahimelech, fleeing to Achish, and um, uh, he takes his parents at this point over to Moab, Moab being on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. Takes his parents over to Moab and stashes them there because any kind of problems with, um, this is antiquity, um, you deal with things like they do with the Godfather, you kill everybody they know and love, you know, that's just, um, uh, so he hides them out there and leaves them and comes back. Now, Saul, um, remember, he has been tormented by this spirit, he's gotten, even when he's sane, more and more jealous of David feels that Jonathan has chosen David over his own inheritance of the throne. He, um, he's moping here at uh, Gibeah in this next section. And he said to his servants, verse 7, who stood about him, Here now, you Benjaminites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a league with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. He's moping. He sounds like he's moping. He's, um, uh, this is the basic choice that Saul is making. Um, 
he knows that he disobeyed the Lord when Samuel gave him the order to go and slay all the Amalekites. He didn't do it. He knows the kingdom has been taken from him and given to his neighbor. He suspects David, uh, pretty much. And uh, it bugs the heck out of him. He's still king. He's still king. He, he knows the handwriting's on the wall, but the pressure to serve himself is huge. The pressure when you're in, the, when you're in sin, and you're in sin because you decided to serve yourself, um, the pressure to serve yourself, even when you're looking at true and right and good things on the other side of repentance, you still try to arrange, you still try to um, shore up. He is saying, you guys aren't getting anything from David. He's not giving you authority or lands like I've given you authority and lands. Um, are you conspiring against me? No one's sorry for me. Uh, my son has turned against me. All these things are ways we try to um, make almost uh, moral pronouncements, moral justifications of our own godhood in our own life. Saul has a way he wants to go. He wants to protect his interests. And he's got to, and we do as well often, we start to make things that sound like it makes our sin morally right to have done our anger, our, our, our immorality, our, our um, you know, um, vindictiveness, whatever the sin may be. Uh, we spend a lot of time, if we're not going to turn to God, now since the fall we have known the knowledge of good and evil in every man, and nobody had to tell us what was good. We're just panicked trying to thread our way over to a justifiable, peaceful evil. We'd like to do evil, thank you, and we'd like it to be peaceful. We'd like it to reward us somehow. Saul's in that situation. And on our own plans, uh, when they choose to serve us rather than the living God, we're, we're, uh, we get ourselves in the same scrape. Now, right after this, Doeg steps forward, the bad guy, and he says, I saw him over at Ahimelech's uh, at uh, Nob, where the priestly clan was, and... Uh, uh, he got Goliath's sword, and Ahimelech fed him and blessed him and sent him on his way, and so they go arrest Ahimelech and bring him in, and Saul questions him, accuses him, commands his soldiers to kill him. The soldiers won't do it because of the priests. Doeg says, I'll do it, because he's Edomite and he's a bad guy. So he kills Ahimelech and all the priestly family. One son of Ahimelech escapes, Abiathar, and he escapes to David. Um, <coughs> now, in this next situation, when he's, it's a series of close calls with Saul. <coughs> first, he was on the immediate run. He could have been chased down, like in the movie The Fugitive, when he first escapes from prison. It's all very dicey because you're almost caught, almost caught, almost caught. You finally get into a situation where you can breathe and think for yourself, but still, Somebody's hunting you. Saul's hunting um, David. And David uh, starts to function as a man in command of 400 men. Uh, and again, in a small terrain area, like the area between here and Pullman and Lewiston, that's kind of the amount of space you're dealing with. Um, and so they're marching and hiding and hiding in caves and the like. 
And a, a certain town was being besieged by the Philistines, Keilah, and um, he asks the, the priest through the ephod that the priest wears, uh, uh, they think maybe using uh, the Urim and the Thummim to make the decision. doesn't mention the Urim and the Thummim, but it, he always mentions the ephod, uh, the priestly ephod, to bring it when he wants those decisions to be made. And God tells him to go and rescue the people. They rescue the people. Then they hear Saul's coming, and he asks again of God, uh, is Saul coming? Yes. Are they going to turn me over to him? Yes. You know, they, the people he just saved. Um, and so people are, are throughout David's life, we talked about this a little last week, they're deciding in this civil conflict whose side they're going to be on, who supports, who... You'll have honorable people serving Saul, like Jonathan or Abner. Um, you'll have uh, others, bad people serving David, but uh, like the uh, sons of um, Zariah, um, Joab, Abishai, and Nasahel, those guys that were bad pieces of work, but good soldiers. Um, and, uh, and so David then has to hide down in the wilderness of Ziph. And those things in the, on the map, or you'll see them close, right south of Hebron, you see Ziph and Maon. And then this is the area he's in right now. And the Ziphites also go to Saul and offer to turn David in. So David is being chased down, and uh, uh, Jonathan does come to him at this point, finds him and, and, and comes to him and encourages David and reiterates his belief that David would be king. I have it here in verse 17 of chapter 23. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. So that um, uh, is to encourage David because he's feeling the wear and tear of this. The Ziphites offer to turn him in and David goes on the run again. Now, he almost, he goes down to Maon and at this point, each of these close calls with Saul. First, there's, he's coming to get you at Keilah. Secondly, when he's on the run out of sight of Maon, he is, he is one ridge away. It makes a statement of saying, David's army was on one side of the ridge and Saul's one on the other side of the ridge and they're just staying that far ahead of each other um, uh, out in the wilderness. Um, but uh, uh, the, the Israelites are attacked by the Philistines somewhere else. Saul has to withdraw um, and uh, uh, David is able to escape. Back in 24, Saul's told again, David's uh, out in the wilderness of En Gedi and he goes down to chase him again. And this is where there's a comic value to this. There's a cave. Saul's got to go to the bathroom. He goes into the cave, and he's taking care of his business. Happens to be that David and the guys are at the back of the cave, watching the king come in, thinking he's having, as we normally do when we go into the bathroom, think we have a lot of privacy. And uh, so he sneaks up to behind him um, and cuts off the skirt of his robe, um, and um, Saul gets done with his business and walks out of the cave. Uh, David makes it clear, and this is interesting about David, you might say David's soul or where it sits. Verse 5, and afterwards David's heart smote him because he'd cut off Saul's skirt. Because it's, it, you know, it's just, it's high school. 
you know, it's 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 prankish, but it's the king you're playing the prank on. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put forth my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now David knows he was anointed by Samuel. He dated. So what's the you know, if you if, if you felt um, you're looking at the current election states and Samuel came to your house and said, you know, I'm just going to anoint you president. And you know, it, was, it was true and it was going to work and it didn't matter what they did on the national stage. Come November, you were going to be president. You know, there'd be a certain um, uh, confidence, a certain assumption, presumption about what was going to be. You would start acting like it was already the case. David doesn't. He does this a number of times. He refuses to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And it's a powerful thing about the nature of authority, what God has appointed, that uh, we have to consider what is David's idea about the ethics of this. Because Saul would have try tried to pin him to the wall twice, three times, with a spear. So he comes out of the cave after Saul has walked off a good distance, I imagine, and says, My lord the king. Saul looks back, and David explains, Look, I had an opportunity to kill you. I didn't kill you. But you've been pretty bad, Saul. I, he says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me upon you, but my hand shall not be against you. He says in verse 15, May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. There's an explanation of David's view of the transference of power. Power is changed from the top down. God can punish Saul. David can't. Saul is above David. And he's still above David. Even though David has been anointed to be future king. Even though Samuel tore the kingdom away from Saul. Saul functionally is still king. And David knows until he's dead, until the Lord judges, I, I have to wait for that, and I will not raise my hand. Saul realizes this, says in verse 17, You are more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas I have you repaid you evil. This is, again, this is the part of the back and forth with Saul, where he always seems to, um, in his torment, always want to pick up the, uh, the threads of greater wickedness, the, the joys of his power as he sees it. Um, he says in verse 20, And now behold, I know that you sure, shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Saul's really convinced. He knows what, what the future holds, but he's going to serve himself. Now, you could also argue probably that Saul was just nuts. He was not a man in command of his emotions. And just like when the evil spirit from the Lord came on him and he'd go crazy and try to kill David, that that was, might be still happening in some sort of uh, uh, mania. Uh, that's a, a, a possibility also. Um, but I've, I have known 
people who claimed to be Christians, who knew what was right for them to do, and how almost seemingly impossible it was for them to choose it. They knew what was good, they knew what was true, they knew God was going to judge them for it, and yet they still went back and tried to do more and more. In chapter 25, I have this titled Abigail, right in the first verse, uh, Samuel dies. Without fanfare, Samuel dies. So that last link with the judgeship of Israel, Samuel's the last judge of Israel, and he had given up the judgeship when Saul became king, but he was this overlap of that period into David and, and um, Saul's life. But this next story, which is quite long as, as in terms of the, which I've trimmed out uh, goodly, goodly some, is the story of Abigail. And he's on the run down in Maon, and there's a man of Maon who has a business in Carmel named Nabal. His name means fool. He is exactly that. Uh, and David has been living off of, since they're not an agricultural uh, band of brigands, they're not growing their own stuff, they have to depend on the charity of various groups and farms and small cities and the like. And so they ask, he sends messengers to Nabal to ask for some food. It says his wife, Abigail, the woman was of good understanding and beautiful, but the man was churlish and ill-behaved. He was a Calebite. I don't know if that last little bit was like, ah, uh, yeah, he was a potlatch, um, or some side, or you're French, something. Um, I think he just was probably informing us he was a Calebite. But he was churlish and ill-behaved. She, and this is, this is a very romantic story, and it's very, I was reading Paul Johnson on the history of the Jews um, a few, well, a couple of months ago, and uh, uh, Johnson, who's a notable historian, uh, you know, obviously I don't think believed the Bible entire, you know, he, but he said one thing, this is a true story. These are, these are such real people, and the documents go so far back, and this is like reading Homer. This is the kind of, or like the Greek tragedians, these are the kind of problems of that era, this is the kind of people, and this is the kind of behavior. Um, Abigail, beautiful and smart. Married to a guy, not so much. Nabal mistreats his servant, says, no way, I'm giving you food. The servant said, hey, they was, his soldiers were really nice to us. Still, the guy was churlish. Message gets back to David. David says, every man gird on his sword. And um, 400 men gird on their swords. 200 stay with the baggage. And the rest go off to do damage. Now, at this point, Abigail hears of what has happened. She immediately sent, gets foodstuffs together and goes out to meet David before <clears throat> he can kill her husband, because that's what he's planning to do. And the basic idea was, I think, phrased thus, that let not one male be left alive. Wipe out the line. Just like Saul had asked, don't let my descendants be cut off, David was going to cut off all the descendants of Nabal, that his family would not have anything left, which in that world was the worst of all possible things. She gets to David, she falls at her feet, and she pleads with David to not do this thing. She explains her husband's a jerk. He's like his name, she says. But then she says, Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, 
seeing the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from taking vengeance with your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And she brings him a present and then blesses him with, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. She, she's, she is there, Abigail, in her understanding, is not only protecting her own house, keeping them alive, her husband alive, her servants alive, everybody alive in this. She's protecting David's house, which she, as she sees it, is in the Lord. That, that this, um, and, and that in the moment is reminding David of his moral um, requirement that's, that's sitting on him, what, what, what God wants him to do this repetition of my Lord and your Lord. Um, uh, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Um, verse 31, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your handmaid. Now, is a bunch of interesting things there. She's a very understanding woman. She knows what she's married to. She knows that this bad-behavioured man has cost them all their lives. If it comes, if if the push part comes, if the shoving part, they're dead. And she's trying to protect her house. She's also trying to protect David's righteousness and the establishment of his house. Which, which comes back to us in Luke where it speaks of the virgin of the house of David. Okay, this is, uh, I'm not making much of the use of the word house, but it, it comes back to us that the establishment of the house of David comes all the way down a thousand years to the place where the Messiah is born of the house of David, as promised. Um, Abigail is doing her best to make sure this is not tainted at the foundation. Not that she knows about the Messiah, but she knows that this will make bad things happen. She wonders about grief, conscience, because you took vengeance yourself. And then she asks her, have you remembered? Um, now, if she just wanted to hit on David, that's what she would have done. She would have hit on David, offered him food, said, why don't you go ahead and kill my husband? <laughs> That we could get married, but she you know, she's trying to save the life of her husband, but because that's right for her to do. Even though he's a bad man, it's right for her to do. Um, not let uh, that family get wiped out. Um, but in whatever house, whatever surety David steps into, whatever gain, she wants him to remember him. She has that kind of belief in his. Remember, he is in his late 20s, okay? He's a stud. He's a good-looking guy with nice eyes. He's like Alexander the Great, you know, that kind of muscular young thug running around with 400 men at his heels, ready to do whatever kind of dastardly deed. Imagine, remember, and she's beautiful with great smarts, and we got this villain, Nabal. But there, but there, there's that, there is this romantic tension in her comment we could tell that it was romantic for a little bit later. Um, the romantic tension in her comment, at the same time, she has done everything she could. She risked her life, she risked everything to preserve the life of her husband. 
David recognizes this, says in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me from this, this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had made haste and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been left Nabal so much as one male. He is, he is turned aside. You, say, you can say, well, golly, wasn't Saul turned aside? You know, David comes out and speaks to him and says, ah, David, and Saul goes, ah, yeah, I've been bad. I'm sorry. I'm going home. You know, you're going to be king. I mean, but we, what we see is in each of these back and forths, David has this back and forth. He is ticked. He has been wronged. Saul felt wronged by David. I mean, there's a bit of not, you know, finding out through the grapevine perhaps that Samuel had anointed this kid, who now is the girls are singing about with a little little ditty. So there's a. There, there is something that is being built in David, where it's not being built, Saul's being reminded, but he's crumbling as a man. He is staying away from the Lord. He is staying away from the right. He knows what's right. He can be talked back into right behavior for a time. You can talk some sinful Christians, in quotes, um, back into right behavior. They'll try for a time, and then their natural desire to serve themselves will take over again. David is being built up into a better man in each one of these situations. He lets her go. She goes back home. Husband's throwing a big party. He is drunk as a skunk. She waits till the next day when he's sober. Then she tells him what she just did. He has a heart attack, lingers 10 days, and dies. But it didn't happen by David's hand. Now, some people would argue about Abigail's having done it in the first place. Nabal did not want to give David anything. Didn't want to give David and his men anything. In a sense, she disobeyed his will. She had a choice there between dying, you know, and you know, everybody was going to die, or um, she was going to do this. She made a judgment call to preserve her husband's life. That information alone shocked him enough to kill him. But I look, at, I look at Abigail's character. I see how she enters David's life here. We have a number of wives of David. If you have the map, you will notice one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight named. Um, and then various wives who went unnamed. And at least ten concubines. David had quite a few women in his life. And we know the stories of some of them. Michael, Abigail, Bathsheba. The rest we don't know much about other than who's, who their kids were. Um, um, Abigail comes across as one of the, you know, she is using her understanding that she's beautiful is just adds to the romance, but that she's understanding she's trying to make the best guess on what am I going to do. She admits in this, you know, um, let, upon first thing she says, upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Pray let your handmaid speak in your ears and hear the words of your handmaid. Um, she um, is desperately trying to save the day. 
and save the life of a husband who's a rotter. You know, <laughs> she gets to leave this handsome twenty-seven-year-old and go back to her husband who is drunk and mean. And I would say that her effort, and, and she tells him what she did. And you might say the Lord solves it. Verse 39, David heard that Nabal was dead. He said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has returned the evil doing of Nabal upon his own head. He believed that the heart attack was from the Lord, that this was God's punishment. And it was just like David wouldn't take strike against um, his overlord, his, the anointed. He also is learning about taking undue vengeance where he really, where his motives couldn't be described as pure. He just, he was insulted, hospitality insult. This is the Middle East, that's what you do. You kill somebody for, you know, burning the toast in the morning. It's an insult. And he was reacting that way, but he learns about not taking that kind of vengeance, letting the Lord take that kind of vengeance. And he next verse, and then David sent and wooed Abigail. Because this girl had appeared out of nowhere, saving her husband's life, her devotion to her house, who she was, great understanding, good-looking, and devoted to pr protect the house to which she belonged. She had, she had all the bits and pieces. I mean, she was, she was great. You see what Abigail's soul is like when the, the servants get sent to propose to her. I yeah, propose, not in the way we do. He's basically like, come along, you're going to be David's wife now. That was the basic... Uh, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. I want that in a wedding at some point. Hopefully my daughter. But it's such a great line. Here is, because the woman is so strong. The woman has saved two men from being poop heads about it. Nabal being really, really dumb, and David stepping into it with all the force he had at his disposal to kill everybody. And this woman stops all that, and then she bows and says, I am your handmaid, and I have the task of washing your servant's servant's feet. Which, which is just poetry. We realize that we don't think that, okay, where are the servant's servants, and where are their feet? It's a, but it's a remarkable statement. Especially when you find out David's marrying two women at this moment, Ahinoam and Abigail. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. So that's wife number two and wife number three. Michael, it says here, Saul had given to somebody else at David's disappearance. In Samuel 26, the Ziphites, noticing David's still out there, come back to Saul, tell him again, he's out there, you might want to come and have a look-see. Saul does, he's camped out down there, and David has spied out the situation. And um, in this situation, Saul is completely surrounded by his men, and he, David is maybe feeling his oats, as like most men in their 20s do, when they have 400 men following them. Uh, and you got some 
you'll find out later or notice in the scriptures, they talk about David's mighty men. David collected really strong guys around him. He was a man of blood, that's why he couldn't build the temple. He was a soldier, and he collected soldiers, and soldiers understood him. He has Ahimelech the Hittite, and Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah. Remember, uh, Abishai is David's nephew. Zariah is David's sister. Okay, So uh, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel are really notable soldiers. David says, hey, let's go down to their camp. Abishai says, shoot, betcha. And down they go, sneak into the camp, just like in the movies. Sneak up on Saul. There's Saul lying there, snoring away. And Abishai, who is... Uh, well, he shows up a few times, and he says cool things, uh, like Ronald Schwarzenegger sort of thing in the moment. Uh, a little later, he shimmy-eyes cursing David, and Abishai says, Why should this dead dog curse the Lord my king? Let me go up and take off his head. David says no. But here, he says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. And they're just whispering to themselves, standing over Saul, let me kill him now. And David says, no. Nope. As the Lord lives, the Lord will smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go down to, into battle and perish. It's not his to take Saul's life. He's surrounded by guys who are operating on the regular world's rules. David is made into someone for all of his violence and for all of his limitations, he is being made as a man who thinks, well, look at what's in that passage. The Lord could smite him. His day could come to die, which brings up an interesting aside. I wouldn't want to pin a whole lot of cosmology on it or our biblical anthropology on it. I suppose that, uh, um, that everybody has a day to die, but the Lord could kill you earlier. Or you could die in battle. You know, in other words, where your, your natural bodily death is, hasn't caught up with you. But any, any way he dies, that's what's going to take care of it. The Lord forbid that I should put forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And so sometimes we have to ask ourselves, am I, am I more like David or am I more like Abishai? I mean... We don't want to be like Saul at all, but you want to be on the good guy's side, but you kind of want to be the, you know, the, the kind of un almost uncontrollable friend that, that always wants to punch somebody. Is it okay to punch him now? Is, you know, is it okay to fight the, uh, in this circumstance? People doing it the world's way. Now, those situations are probably pretty obvious, but you see David getting a... He has a growing knowledge of God that it's important for him to know who his God is. You just read the Psalms and you, you start to see the nature of his, for a violent man, the nature of his meditations through all of these things. He wrote some of the Psalms while he was on the run from Saul. He was feeling all of it, but he was trying to understand the way God had made the earth and how he wanted David to live in it. And that's really what you might say ultimate virtue is. Am I living in the world God made, the way the maker of the world wanted me to live in it? Am I understanding this at the level, in the moment? Am I saying the thing? Am I doing the thing that my God wants me to do in this world? 
the rest of the world has come up with systems and cultures and reactions and normalcies that we sometimes just give ourselves over to and live like Abishai and defeat our enemies. So David sneaks back out, taking the spear and the water bottle, and it stands a good way off and wakes them all up and kind of insults Abner and says, you know, hey, the thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. He actually has a little dig at Abner, who's a good man, who's a righteous man. But um, I've got the king's spear, I've got the king's water bottle. There's only one way I could have gotten that. Um, Saul ends up being repentant again. Um, and he does not, he even says, I have played the fool. I didn't leave that part in. I just put the, in verse 21, that's it's not on the page. But he said, I've played the fool. And that's exactly so. You begin to see the calamity, the torment of the calamity as the choice back to wickedness keeps happening for Saul. He becomes less and less able to work his way back out. In verse 23, here on the side it says, David says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Um, telling Saul that Saul can assent to the righteous, but being righteous is not the thing that he is good at. Now, in this next um, term, this, uh, the, so you had the, part, the initial escape from Saul, you had all the close calls with Saul as David and his men marching around um, that Ziph and Moan and, and uh, Cave of Adullam sector of, of uh, the Negev. Um, David finally realizes this, this is going to go on forever. He says in chapter 27, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. This is getting, it's getting weary. You're 400, 600 men, it's not enough. You're dealing with thousands in armies. So he goes down um, to Gath again to serve Achish, the king of the Philistines in Gath, uh, as a mercenary. And uh, Achish takes him in, and, um, and David says, can I have a, my own little city? And he gives him Ziklag, which is out towards the Negev, between Philistia, uh, right here on this river, the uh, I think it's called the, uh, the Bezor or something like that, um, between Amalek and Philistia. And David is given that territory by Achish. And then he serves Achish for a year and four months, it says, um, raiding down there as a mini-army. And he raids all the Amalekite and various other pagan cities and tells Achish that he's been raiding Judean cities in the Negev. So he tells him a different story. You can discuss amongst yourselves at some point whether the lie to Ahimelech and the lie about the, which cities he was raiding. Achish comes away with the notion. Achish is sort of one of these nice pagan king. You know, he, he, he trusts David. He likes David. He, David's a good servant. And he thinks that David is making himself abhorrent to the Jews because he keeps attacking these Jewish settlements out in the Negev. But actually he's attacking Amalekite cities out in the Negev but kills everybody in them, so word can't get back to the Philistines what David's up to. Um, 
in this situation, the Philistines get, are getting ready for a major war with uh, Israel. Saul hears about it, and Saul's no longer thinking about David. David's off the scene, been off the scene for a year. Um, so he hasn't been chasing David around in the, uh, the, the wilderness. But he doesn't know what to do. Samuel's dead. The prophets won't speak. He can't dream correctly. God will not speak to him. He can't get direction. And just like David does, I mean, it was one of the things. Bring me the priest of the ephod. Tell me what I should do in this situation. Saul doesn't have that. And then to go out without kind, any kind of um, metaphysical... I mean, all of, you know, the Romans would examine the auspices. We get auspicious from examining the livers of... Uh, goats, I think, or sheep, um, and the lumps on the liver told you what, or the flight of birds, or, uh, or uh, arrows, they'd throw down arrows like, um, I forgot what that's called, some kind of divination, various forms of divination where the king could um, know a little bit more about how things are going to turn out. The Jewish king could consult the prophets, but the prophets weren't speaking. So he got a problem. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes and finds the witch of Endor, the medium of Endor. He has banished mediums from the land, so driven them all out. And so just finding one was a, a major thing. So he goes to her in secret with two men, and she says, what do you want? And she says, uh, though you don't do know it's illegal what you're asking for. And he says, yeah, but nothing's going to happen to you. She says, what do you want? He says, bring Samuel up from the grave. She proceeds to do so. Now, I don't know what your sense of metaphysics are, but that creeps me out. And the fact that it could be done. It's really Samuel. He calls him up from Hades, and Samuel prophesies against him. As soon as she knows who she's getting, Samuel, but as soon as Samuel comes up out of the earth, she knows who she's talking to. The first thing she says, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. So the, the, the knowledge that Samuel, the ghost of Samuel has... Is, is transferred to the medium, and she's able to realize what situation she's in. And so she describes the ghost, and Saul knows it's Samuel. And Samuel says in verse 15, said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul says, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me, and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. This is, the, this is circling the drain moment for, for Saul. He, is, he, has, he will try to do anything. Extreme. This is where people murder people. They, they, they tidy try to make it right, make it work, make their evil finally uh, pan out, and they do more and more. He, he's doing what he said was illegal. He had driven out the mediums and the wizards from the land. And he's gone and found one to get what he needs. Turns to necromancy, consulting of the dead. Samuel doesn't have good words for him. Saul hits bottom, and Samuel says, Tomorrow, you and your sons are going to be with me. Not, it's not a positive. Saul's really distressed. He hasn't eaten. The next passage is talking about how the witch tries to get him to eat and fixes him dinner. So I left that one out. But... Um, the war that's coming, this is what sets Saul up. 
This is the bottom that Saul hits. David, on the other hand, is a mercenary for the people he's going to fight. The Philistines were gathered at Aphek. Now, Aphek is, there's two. There's one here, and there's one further north up in the plain up here. This one, I think it has to be because the amount of time David, he, to get back to Ziklag, it took him three days. And he had no way he could do this in three days. You could do maybe 20 miles march a day. Um, and so it's probably Aphek here. There's a pass right through here up into the, um, uh, the plain of Jezreel, where uh, the Mount Gilboa, where the troops of the Israelites are at Mount Gilboa, and the Philistines are going to meet the, the Israelites at Jezreel to do battle. And all the five lords of the Philistines are gathered together at Aphek, and they, are, um, they see David and his troop marching behind Achish, and they go, what are these Hebrews doing here? Hold it, isn't that that guy? And they, they, they bring up the song again. Isn't this the one with the thousands and the ten thousand stuff? Um, we don't think we want him in the battle. If he's a good soldier, we especially don't want him in the battle because how would he get back in with his fellow Israelites except by suddenly turning on us? And you got to think, the lords of the Philistines were probably on, on point. This is the battle where Saul and Jonathan are killed. David would be there fighting on the Philistine side. His best friend Jonathan and his king being slaughtered over there. And you've got a, a troop of military men. You've, you've already kind of uh, ripped off the Philistines a little bit. You're a little bit uh, insubordinate about things. So they send David and his troop away. They can't fight in the battle. <coughs> the last two stories here are in chapter 30 is David going back to Ziklag and the last chapter 31 is the death of Saul at Jezreel, Mount Gilboa. Um, in Samuel 30, David gets back to Ziklag. It's found it's been burned and destroyed by the Amalekites and all, everything has been taken. All the women, all the kids, everybody has been taken. No one was killed, but they were all taken by the Amalekites. Remember, David has been raiding the Amalekites for a year. Um, so everybody, everybody's lost their wives, Every, all of his soldiers get back there and they've lost wives, they've lost kids, everything, everybody's in tears. It says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Now listen to this. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David's two wives had been taken by the Amalekites. David is distinct, and I think Christians, because they're a very small minority in the world, uh, we don't want to be making decisions based on what everybody else would do, and the, that we would naturally think, of course, it's you're sad that your two wives have been taken. I don't know if there are any kids at this point. Um, he has right to be sad like they, but they're lashing out at him, suggesting stoning him, and he takes strength in God. So he takes, gets, gets the uh, priest, Abiathar, to bring out the ephod again and says, okay, can we catch these guys? Can we uh, overtake them? Can we beat them? And the Lord says yes and yes. So he puts together 600 men. They head south to the Bezor. The Bezor, it was a forced march because it says 200 men have to be left on one side of the river because they were too exhausted to cross the river. So David goes on with 400. Um, 
and they find this, and this is kind of a movie, they find this Egyptian wandering in the desert without water and they rescue him and he was a servant of the Amalekites and, and was left behind and uh, so he offers to take David to where they are if they won't kill him. So they, they do that and off they go and they hit the Amalekites and hit them hard and bring back all the, everybody was rescued, everybody was saved and they got all the spoil plus some. David's, um, you might say, kingliness or leadership is, you don't always see it, you don't always get the moments. This is one where you do, because they get back to the Bezor, and, uh, is that the right name of the river? I'm, I'm, uh, the, yeah, book, the book, Brook Bezor. And uh, the guys that went on the battle are a little bit stingy, don't want to share the spoil with the 200 guys that got left at the Bezor, you know, because they weren't there in the fight. Um, and David says, no, that's not the way battles work. You share the spoil with the people who guard the baggage, just like you, like the ones who fought. That's good. And it becomes a law, he says. Um, uh, and from that day forward, verse 25, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. So you have, you have David's you know, understanding and standing against you know, his his own men. It, it talked about how there were base, wicked and base fellows in his, in his soldiers that were making this suggestion. So there, there's this ability to control uh, with his righteousness those men who followed him. And it doesn't seem like he got any problem. Uh, once he started moving and started making decisions about things, even the, all the talk of stoning him was re, you know, removed by his pursuit of God. Um, Samuel 31 is the story. It occurs. This is the first part of David's life, Saul's life, that occurs in Chronicles. Uh, first Chronicles, the first nine chapters are all those. And so this family was made up of these countless numbers of people, these people, and these people, for nine chapters. And then this, chapter 10 of First Chronicles, is this account, almost verbatim. There's a couple of shifts. Um, but... Saul is fighting the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. It goes badly for the Jews, like Samuel had prophesied. God had departed. All of Samuel's sons, three of them are killed uh, uh, in the battle, including Jonathan. And, uh, you mean Saul's sons? Saul's sons, yes. Saul's sons are killed in the battle. Um, and he's wounded. He doesn't want to be captured. He asks his servant to kill him. His servant won't do it. Saul falls on his own sword. And the servant gets frightened and falls on his own sword. Um, I don't think we understand that kind of loyalty too much. But nobody wants to be captured by the Philistines, I guess, uh, is the, because as Saul said, lest they make sport of me. Um, it would be, yeah, it would be, it would be bad. It's like captured by the Vietnamese or something. Um, we find out later that Saul actually survived a bit of time, or at least the people who report his death claimed that he was still alive when they found him. Um, and they killed him, um, but uh, and that'll be next week. But uh, uh, they dismember Saul, cut his head off, take it to the temple of of uh, in Chronicles, the temple of Dagon. Here it's the temple of Ashtaroth. Um, uh, Dagon was a standard Philistine deity, a grain god, um, and we don't know a whole lot about him. He's, he's sort of Ugaritic, coming out of the. But the Ashtaroth or Ashtoreth or Ashtarte is this um, 
love, um, uh, fertility, sex, and war goddess, who is Ishtar, who is Aphrodite, who is Venus. It's all the same. So this is our C.S. Lewis reading, tying right in with... Well, they, they tack his head in the temple of Astaroth. Um, back in Philistia, they hang his body and his son's bodies outside of Beth Shan, a city in uh, northern Israel. Beth Shan is on the map. I didn't put it on here. But it's Mount Gilboa is right up here in the north, just to the east of Mount Gilboa, out towards the Jordan, is Beth Shan. One of the great little nobilities of the moment also is very similar to our um, story that we've been reading of C.S. Lewis's on Tuesdays. Uh, the men of Ramoth Gilead, after they hear the death of Saul, they're over here on the other side of the Jordan, up this river, and they hear that Saul's been killed and his body is hanging outside Beth Shan with the sons of Saul. They says, the valiant men arose and all went at night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and they came to Jabesh and burnt them there. They rescued the bodies, not the heads, but the bodies of, of uh, uh, the royal family and buried them um, there. So it's, a, it's kind of a, a little bit of sad nobility there at the end. The Chronicles account, one of the things it changes, it adds a, a colophon, an ending, a, a summation. So Saul, here on the left in the margin, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness. He was unfaithful to the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, and also consulted a medium seeking guidance, and did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore the Lord slew him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. This is a nice little summation of what we've been watching happen, that, that, that this unfaithfulness, not because he didn't know, he knew. And not because people don't know what is good, because they know. They choose to be unfaithful to God, not keeping the command of the Lord. And then when that starts to blow up in your face, where do you go for guidance, even further away from the Lord? You go to a necromancer and get guidance from the dead, or attempt to, rather than getting it from the Lord. So God says, you're dead. Or as he said to Abimelech, behold, you are a dead man. Um, well, that is the end of um, the hour, and the end of these ten chapters. Um, uh, next week, I forget how far we're going. Remember, this is six weeks of Bible study. So the rest of, the, of, of this is all prior to the kingship. He becomes king in Hebron next week. And uh, then we've got 40 years of kingship to cover. Uh, a lot of action, a lot of tragedy. Uh, it reads like Oedipus Rex in some of the places. But you know, um, um, it's, a, uh, it's, a great, it's a great story. A lot of, lot of benefit. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your drawing us to yourself. And we're grateful that as we have looked at good and bad, we are trying to learn and choose that which would please you. That we um, rely on your grace and your forgiveness, but we also um, want to be responsible for choosing again and again to turn towards you, to seek you in our distress. In your son's name, amen.